0: Hey everybody, this is Neil Sean, and you're listening to Jazz Is Not What You Think.
1: Joining us today is rock legend, journey founder, and guitarist Neil Sean. Thank you for being on the show today, Neil. Before we get into the music, I gotta ask you. You've lived the rock and roll lifestyle. You've been on tour in bands on the road for almost 40 years. How do you manage to stay looking so young? Uh, it's, it's a
0: good life, you know, it's a good married life.
1: <laughs> Take us down this, pun intended, journey. For you, where did this music begin?
0: Um, well, you know, um, I was born in an Air Force base uh, with my folks. My dad was a big band arranger and my mom was a singer in a band in Oklahoma. And then shortly after I was born, uh, we moved to New Jersey because his brother lived back east. Uh, we were in Trenton, New Jersey. Capital. And uh, and then, you know, when I was about six, we, we moved out to the West Coast to get situated. Uh, and that's what's been going on. So ever since, you know, I love the West Coast. Knowing
1: that you grew up listening to jazz and blues and music around the house, I get a sense when I listen to your playing. That there's some underpinnings of blues and maybe a touch of jazz improvisation that has allowed you to create these anthem-like, classic, rock solos and riffs.
0: Absolutely, those are those are my real roots. Uh, before I was really even playing rock, um, you know, uh, I I started out playing, listening to a lot of, you know. Um, Ethnic blues um, from all the you know major guys, the real guys like um, <laughs> Albert King and BB King and um, Buddy Guy and you know Michael Bloomfield I also loved a lot uh, and then you know all the British invasion you know uh, Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and Jimi Hendrix of course and uh, Jimmy Page and so they're all Blue blues influenced Blue. guitar players but I also listened to a lot of uh, fusion yeah, back know. then. You know, I loved uh, Corea and Billy Connors, with uh, somebody that I knew, the guitar player that played on the first Return to hey, Forever. Um, and I loved his play and actually got together with him kind of and and actually thing. recorded over some stuff that he did before for another friend because they thought he was too outside. <laughs> so I tried to keep him more inside, but I felt you know, like, you know, that was uh, a sacrificial. Uh, uh, guitar, you know, removal that I thought was not needed. I
1: found when I listened to music, guitarists in particular, um, regardless of genre, when they tend to have some connection to blues, there's more of an emotional, something from the heart rather than just from the brain that has that connection with people where their guitar solo as they're playing has a real sense of feeling.
0: Yeah, you know, it's about the note. You know, it's about the feeling of the note. It's not about the, you know, uh, the scales that you're mixing together. Um, you know, honest to God, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing to this day as regard to mixing scales together. Other people can tell me, oh, you're mixing this and you're mixing that, and that's really interesting. But you know what? I have no clue when I'm playing. I'm sort of freelancing, and I've always played by ear. I did study. You know, jazz for about three months from a very good guitar player, uh, Art Bergman in uh, the Peninsula that my dad set me up with. But besides that, I'm just, you know, I I play sort of like what I'm surrounded by. You know, if you stick me in Jamaica and you put me on stage with a Jamaican band, I'm going to play some, you know, wicked Jamaican reggae that's blues oriented, you know, that's singing. And so if you stick me in a room with with Omar Hakim or Steve Smith, with you know, uh, you know, either his wife or uh, you know another jazz out keyboard player, that's all going to come out of me. And so, that's that's one of the joys I think of um, playing guitar is there's you know the, it's never-ending what you can learn on it and what you can do on it. You know, it's uh, and really for me, it's who you're playing with. You're only as good as the people you're playing with. We get a hint of your secret love
1: affair with jazz on uh, my pal Lee Rittenhauer's Six String Theory album alongside other great guitarists like Mike Stern, John Schofield, and Steve Lukather.
0: It was funny, man. I remember doing that session in LA and I had not heard the track at all. And so uh, they were basically, I had Steve Lukather over my right shoulder and Lee over my left shoulder. <laughs> and, and they're trying to, to hum it to me and teach it to me while I'm playing. And luckily enough, you know, I'm, I'm a fast learner like that, otherwise it could have gotten really nervy for me. Um, You know, I think I felt like I could have, after I learned the melodies that they gave me and the bends and everything, you know, I I felt like I could have actually played better. But there was so much going on, they had so many other people to record and people were in and out of the studio, so you know, it wasn't one of those sessions where I had like uh, two hours to work on, on, on what I was doing. It was like, knock it out, do it now, this is the melody. No, you're playing it wrong. And, you know, it was funny, you know. Kind of like a Steely Dan record. <laughs> uh, probably, I've never been around or, or you know, uh, in the room when they go down, but I can imagine that there's a lot of hair pulling, you know, pulling out, uh, out of frustration, like, no, it needs to be this. Yeah. They seem very, very clinical. I mean, I love their records, but you don't get a clinical record and a musical record like that by not doing what we're talking about.
1: Now, on occasion, we get to hear the softer side of the wheel. For the most part, we hear fiercely electric, fast playing, shredding sound.
0: And even Carlos
1: Santana named you the Vortex. Tell me about that.
0: You know what? He, um, My wife, Mikel, and Carlos, and Carlos's wife, Cindy, and the rest of them, you know, older Santana band, threw me a, a 60th birthday party when we were up in Las Vegas when we first started getting together for the Santana Ford project. And, um, you know, I walked in the room and it was kind of embarrassing, you know, and they had a big giant cake and here I am, 60 years old, and i feeling like, oh, I should be five. <laughs> but, but you know, it was looking a great forward. He gave me a beautiful watch, you know, and um, he just basically handed me watch and he says, it's time. You know, and I go, I get it. You know, it's time to do it again. Yeah. And, you um, and then he, as we were talking through the evening, he said, you know, I gotta give you a new name. You know, he goes, your playing is so fierce. And, you know, you like pull everybody in when you get going. I said, your name should be Vortex. And so at the time, you know, I never heard of Vortex. I thought it was some kind of clothing that you wear, you know, in, in the winter time uh, for snow. And um, I went and looked it up and I went, wow, that's a really cool name. And so. I've adapted it, I've, I've now dropped Joseph and my middle name's jo- Vortex. Neil, you were in your
1: teens, uh, a struggling young musician trying to figure out his future when all of a sudden, Carlos Santana and Eric Clapton recognized your talent. At that point in your life, seemingly
0: invincible, what was going on in your head? What were you thinking about? Well, you know, I couldn't have probably played with a more influential, talented band than, you know, choosing to play, you know, with Carlos, you know. I would have loved to play with Derek and the Dominos too, but they felt like they were kind of like on their way out, you know, there was a lot of uh, problems inside the band, I can sense. And I just feel, I felt like they weren't gonna be around that long, but, you know, when I met the Santana guys, all of them, I mean, Greg and Michael Shreve were really the first ones that I met and you know Greg and I started hanging out all the time started picking me up at high school and you know I would cut school and I'd go over to his dad's house which was you know down in the peninsula close to San Mateo I think in Belmont and his dad had a piano down there and we just brought a little lamp and him and I would jam on a piano and, amp and we'd just play you know that's how everything started and then soon after that um, you know they were recording their Abraxas record at Wally Heider's in San Francisco and um, one of the the road crew that that I became very close with that actually was one of the main guys why I met these people all of them later is he used to come down and pick me up because I didn't have a license or a car or anything and bring me into the city and introduce me to so many different club owners and uh, you know they all let me come in and play and this is an era you know in in um, you know the late I mean 60s where, um, you know, there was a lot of music going on in San Francisco, whether it was the Fillmore West or it was, uh, uh, you know, the El Matador, uh, where I met Gabor Szabo with Carlos. Um, And, um, you know, I just played as much as I could. I walked up and down the street with my guitar and walked into as many clubs as possible and played with as many bands as possible. But to get to your question, that you asked me, um, you know, Carlos himself, I don't believe that there's another musician on this planet that has quite a collection of music that Carlos has of all types of world music. Um, he's got the coolest stuff ever. And it was always like that when I first met him when I was 15, and 14, and now it's the same when we hang out. He's always got this library of music that you've never thought of listening to or where he found it. And I have no clue. I mean, he just, he studies all the time, uh, a lot of different artists from different countries, from Africa, uh, you know, Latin America. uh, There's a lot of, you know, African rhythms, Cuban rhythms, Latin rhythms, world rhythms. uh, And, you know, he's never searching for something to be inspired by, which is really inspiring for me to be around, you know? Uh, because it's coming from such a fresh place and not just the the hit ditty of the week. Do you think that's
1: possibly why Santana has been able to maintain a relevance through the eras?
0: Definitely. I mean, he you know Carlos is um, extremely knowledgeable as his wife Cindy, you know musically, of everything that's out there. and and he's much like what I talked about too. He's like, you know, when you surround yourself with really great musicians, great things come out. And, you know, when I first heard Santana, when I was really young, before I even actually met the guys, I was—I went up to the college of San Mateo, because I was living in an apartment complex with my folks then, uh, and I think I was like 13. I just, you know, really started to be able to play. By the time I was 13, I was like playing some pretty wicked blues, you know? And uh, I went up to the college to see this band called Santana. They were playing at the college of you know san mateo and i went and i'm listening and i'm like wow this is really wild music i didn't know quite how to put my finger on it you know and it wasn't anything close or remotely close to what i was listening to at the time yet i could feel the urgency in the blues and Carlos's playing you know but it was you know he had a, a style all to himself um and you know his dad was a uh, a violin player, and uh, so I think, in, and I, and I believe Carlos actually started out playing violin. So his fingering is very different, you know, and his uh, technique and choice of melody. I mean, a guy is full of melody. He's really one of the main influential people with me that that instilled melody in to me, because when I joined Santana, I was more of a a blues shredding fusion guy, you know, um, where I, I sort of took my favorite licks, hot licks of all the guitarists that I liked, whether it was Beck or Hendrix or Clapton or, or Page or, and with, you know, Buddy uh, Guy and all the Kings and, you know, and sort of mixed it all up. And that was kind of my, like my Cajun soup sauce. You know, it was a spicy sauce of everybody mixed together. I know that you were spearheading it at a Santana reunion. How's that going? It did. It's so, done. so that was the one that happened, what, circa 2013, 2014? I think 14, um, if I'm not mistaken, we started rehearsing um, at his uh, rehearsal place and just got together to see what it would feel like in Las Vegas. And, you know, it was amazing because, you know, when you have chemistry like that in a band, which that Santana band definitely was a chemistry band of who was in it. Um, it it's kind of like riding a bike; you never forget how to do it, and to fall into you know that that um, you know vein of uh, inspiration and being able to bounce off to everyone. So um, the chemistry was immediate when we sat down and started playing. I hadn't played with Carlos for quite some time, or Greg, uh, or the rest of the guys, Michael Shreve or Michael Carabello. And um, we started playing, and it immediately sounded like the old band, the original band uh, that I was a part of as well. You know, uh, from the, it sounded like an extension of the third record that I played all over, and so um, it was it was obvious that things were still happening there. And um, Carlos, I think, was pleasantly surprised. We all were. And so I believe we have one more rehearsal where we just, um, you know, came up with as many songs as we could, and then we went when we finally went in the studio uh, this this last year. Um, how many months ago, Michael? May. We were in the studio in May, and we went for three weeks uh, prior to me doing uh, a residency at the House of Blues with Journey for nine shows, and so I was kind of like hanging in Las Vegas for two months, and. The three weeks we did in the studio i believe we recorded like 18 songs and none of them were even some of them were close to the ones that we did rehearsal of and, and worked up and some of them were brand new most of them were like i think they were brand new and carlos would just bring them in i think i wrote three or four songs greg wrote a few and then carlos brought a bunch in and now was it you know and Um, So the record sounds, um, last time I heard it, it sounded really great. Uh, They've all been working on it. I kind of finished up my stuff very organically and very quickly, you know, after we cut, we played live. I played live solos like we used to in the old days. And so there was none of this, oh, let's go back and punch in here for myself. And uh, until the last day where everybody had left and gone home after most of the major work had been done, uh background vocals scratch vocals were done for greg and um everything was kind of pieced together you know and put together um, at that point and then i scoped through all my stuff within about three hours and i just like you know ran one tune down and and sat with jim his, his engineer and said uh you know i was recording in the room um all i could hear was michael shrieves drums i wasn't really i'm, I'm used to recording By the way, I haven't recorded inside the studio with an amplifier, I think, for a good, like, three decades. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, to be in the room, uh, besides rehearsal, rehearsal was really great. For some reason, I could hear better because you're playing at a higher volume because it gets loud. You know, with that many drums, it gets loud in the room, and then you have a hard time hearing because they don't want your amps loud, and they got baffles around it, and then you have to depend on, you know, the crappy, you know, earphone mix that that comes through, that you use in the studio. And um, my ears are kind of fried and beat up from, you know, so many years of playing and, and actually, Harley Davidson, <laughs> and symbols. you know. Cymbals and motorcycles, I think, you know, I have like permanent t- uh, tinnitus and, um, you know, just learn to live with it, but, you know, it has not affected my playing at all, I just prefer, to play really low volume when I'm recording in the control room and I never use big speakers. And so Carlos loved the big speakers in the studio and he likes to play back really loud when he's overdubbing and and, and cutting live. And so I go, well, that's not gonna work for me. So I went out with the guys. Anyway, long, st- long uh, story short, I uh, I ended up just going back and and redoing and a, f- a few little bits and pieces I dropped in a few notes here and there where I felt the timing was a bit off and and then it was uh Carlos wanted me to play more than I had played and so they just kind of opened up the track and gave me more bars to blow and and I just you know kind of did it very quickly and I left. And so I haven't heard it I think the rest of the guys have been closer to it than myself because um you know I've had a lot going on I had to rehearse to come out here uh for the Journey Tour. now. Vortex is opening up a journey, and that was a whole nother thing for me to get together. Was the Vortex record because, um, you know, I'd put that all together with Steve Smith in the studio, basically, and a little bit with Igor Lynn on on keys, um, but pretty much Steve and I freelanced that that record like we did the Calling, uh, and except this time, you know, I hadn't had so much, you know, as mapped out. There was a few ideas that I had laid down in a looping machine, um, where I had a clue about what I wanted to do and what type of rhythm I wanted. Um, but for the most part, you know, I'll let Steve uh, do. We were talking about African rhythms, and you know, he he went into that whole you know area. And the thing I love about Smith is he's just so freaking musical. The guy is like he has the ability to be able to. Um, or see the landscape, you know, when we're talking about it before it's even started to be created, and so uh, to to be able to play with a drummer like, like that is amazing for me um, because that's really all I need to make a record. Uh, for the for for you know the roots of the record, you need guitar and you need the drums, and I've been playing bass in these records, and so bass kind of goes on last. For me. Uh, I mean, I would freelance most of my solos. A lot of them I just played live jamming with Smith. And I made everything make sense later by intertwining a, a, you know, a, a theme melody that would go throughout the song because there was so much burning going on. I was like, well, you know, I mean, it's good playing and it's very off the cuff and it's, you know, very, you know, like a late 60s improvisational record. but. You know, I said, in order for people to be able to listen to a 10 minute torture Souls, I said, I need a theme, you know, so in, in the 11th hour, I added all the acoustic pieces that I did on the record and all the, the electric guitar themes that you hear going kind of like, you know, I had a theme in, in the song Stone in Love with Journey, where I intertwined the bass and wrote that Jack Bruce bass part to go with the lead guitar. And so it's you know it's a chain that makes the whole thing happen, and um, you know I came up with those themes that like really tied the record together. A different chore than when you go to play live, like I am now, <laughs> to figure out what to put where, you know. But it's it's um it's been a really great experience for me, and I feel like after now that we've like played about four or five shows, we just started clicking. Last night we had a great great show. When you brought Steve
1: Smith into the band, a Berkeley. Trained jazz drummer. Was there any backlash from other band members, fans, people close to Journey?
0: Well, I don't, I don't remember a lot of people balking at that, as there was not so many people so familiar with the jazz um, area anyway that was in our audience. Um, and I think you know, once he started, once we settled, and we got in, and we were playing. They were pleasantly surprised that he was just, you know, pretty bombastic and a great feel and everything. Um, I think like when Steve came into the band and we did, you know, our first record, um, Evolution, uh, it was as unfamiliar and sort of uncomfortable as it was for me when I first went in and did our first record where everything was more, you know, the vocals were the focal point Mm -hmm. of the record. You know, I came from like, you know, like a progressive band and Santana and, you know, all the fusion stuff that I was digging, playing and the heavier rock stuff that we were doing and going, trying to learn how and wrap my head around, uh, you know, creating a three and a half minute song that was gonna have some substance to it um, that didn't sound really like terrible and be able to get played on the radio and there there is an art to that and you know once i i completed a couple songs with with steve perry you know the first couple songs i wrote you know uh, the first one we wrote uh together in a room um patiently and i just had the chords sitting around i had an acoustic guitar and he started singing and then you know by the half an hour we had a song and then he just you know continued to finish the lyrics on that. Lights was the same thing. And I think Lights is probably the best example of any short song that we put together that has a lot of great elements uh, in a short amount of time. It's, to me, it's much more difficult to make a very, like a musical statement and a statement that's going to be accepted broadly in three and a half minutes than it is for me to be able to blow. For 10 minutes that's easy for me yeah (laughs) it's really fun and easy for me but usually you know people they like to see that live like the early journey we you know before steve came into the band perry you know we had finally found our niche um with the right audience in and opening up for leonard skinner and when we found that audience all of a sudden we were getting three and four strong encores in front of them um without it being you know all this AM music, you know, that we pretty much went into that area. Um, but at that time, we also, also had, you know, done some serious, you know, traveling and paying dues for three, you know, really tiring years. Uh, and we're barely getting by, you know, and, and we were playing 11, 10, 11 months out of every year and traveling around in a state wagons you know like three station wagons and uh, barely get into a gig in time to jump on stage and play, then jump back into the station wagon and oh then you know drive all night long and look for the holiday inside there it is we just passed it turn around yeah and so we were all looking for our lives to get a little bit more comfortable to where we could just you know travel in some kind of comfort at that point after you do like dues like that I think anybody wants that and so we did, you know, take the advice of our record company at that point and our management and, and look to get a, a vocal point to try to get on the radio so we could make some money uh, selling records, which, you know, now we're back in that same area again. We don't make any money unless I'm selling, you know, vinyl, which I'm really happy to say that I am selling some vinyl. And you can't download it, but you know, with all the, the streaming and downloading, you know none of the musicians are getting take care of anymore so basically you know we do a lot of time on on tour because that's how we make our living sure. as you know
1: Neil, let's take a very quick detour and talk about technology don't stop believing 130 million streams on spotify what's your take on technology these days
0: well i i i understand it because you know Unless the live record of it has been completely doctored and, re, you know, recorded, they're getting something that's real. You know, with Pro Tools, you never know quite what you're getting. And, you know, there's an art to use in Pro Tools, and I've, I've learned to love it, you know, uh, as well as hate it. I hated it, you know, in the beginning. I really didn't care for, you know, what it sounded like. I did not feel like, you know, you were getting broad spectrum of, of fidelity, you know. Um, I just didn't, I I was missing the bottom end, and I was missing a lot of the warmness from the instruments. But until you find, you know, I mean, there's a real art to recording in HD Pro Tools, and I love the engineer I've been using on my solo records, most recently, Jesse Nichols at uh, Fantasy uh, recording studios, where we had recorded, you know, Escape and Frontiers in in the 80s, and um, he's got it down, you know? It's also having a really great sounding room. You know, I found a you know, Studio A at Fantasy has a high ceiling that Metallica, I believe, had put in there uh, for drum sounds and guitar sounds. And um, Smith just sounds really great in that room. You know, he's very dynamic as a drummer. He's, you know, he's not on the ceiling the whole time, where if you play with a drummer in a room that's out live, that plays and bashes all the time, it's not going to sound good. And so the fact that he's very controlled and studied you know he studied everything smacked. I mean you know it, he went he goes from one guy to the next guy to the next guy and every year I find that he's studying something that he's never he doesn't know about and you know one year he happened to be studying all the John Bonham records and to my amazement I mean he really dissected it and he got it down to the total field to work I think he's played it closer from to my ears than anybody's ever done it and all had to do with placement of course of where the drums are sitting and you know, basically the kick and the snare and the rest of it comes as well, but really the placement of the snare and the kick and the velocity that you're playing at where it's not a fix it in the mix. You know, well turn up the bass drum, I'm not hearing it loud enough, you know. And Jimmy Page, you know, has some great recording techniques and very, you know, old school, uh, old jazz records where, you know, you put up some, some great mics in the studio, overheads, um, you know, one mic on the snare, one on the, the bass drum, and then, you know, a couple a little bit further back and different room placements. But it all comes down to the drummer knowing how he wants that drum to sound on the recording. That's something I gotta give kudos for, to, to Bonham about in, in their records, that nothing was synthetically made with samples and all that. It was like, when to know where to hit it louder and where to place it. And Steve studied that and, you know, he, he's got that done. And So um, the main thing for making a record like I, like I do with Steve is that we're walking in with a clean slate but because his parts are so worked out even before most of the is, when we talk about it and we arrange it you know together like this is going to go for this amount of bars and then i'll say um like I come in and and i'll have this groove in my head and i'll say you know this is the the first groove that i'm thinking of that we can use and and uh then um i'll go let's let's um, loop this idea for a while. And and so he'll loop it for like, you know, eight bars. And I go, just give me 10 minutes with it and let me organize my thoughts and, and just jam over the top of the loop and, and kind of put all the sections of the song together. And then he'll come in and we'll talk about what section's gonna do what, what's gonna be a solo section, what's gonna be a melody section, what's gonna be, you know, a verse. And uh, at that point, then, then he'll write it out. He'll chart it out. Then he'll go out and play it from top to bottom. And as it is, like I lay down with the rhythm guitar and the loop and we'll replace the loop. And at that point, then I'll start playing live solos with them as it's going down with just a rhythm guitar and a live drum. So I'm actually playing live with Steve, but there is a rudimental rhythm guitar that's sitting there. Um, and that's sort of how we, we did most of the record.
1: Let's talk about the new album. A musical journey of sorts, um, a lot of music, um, two full CDs, uh, ranging from beautiful acoustic guitar to shredding classic Neil Shawn solos. Um, and interestingly, the album opens up with Miles Beyond, and while it certainly uh, has a, a tribute or a homage to to Miles Davis. Um, I was wondering whether it also had a secondary meaning uh, as a tribute to your son, Miles.
0: Um, actually, it, well, that's a nice thing to say that. It could have been both, but really it was Miles Davis. Um, you know, the first section that we came up with, uh, and the bass line I came up with, reminded me of, you know, sort of the Bitches Brew era. And then, you know, I, I started laying down all these ethereal sounding guitars that kind of make it made it sound really kind of out there. Uh, and then later played you know the lead guitar on top that i sort of looked at like more it was like a trumpet type avant-garde guitar for you know for my playing anyway um but you know the song is you can tell that this starts out like in a miles davis type area um i love smith's uh you know african rhythm that he that he brings to the table there in the front but then i had this idea of it going into this wicked you know, rock and line that would be more like a Hendrix Zepp type line, and which you know I ended up playing um, the the violin or the cello parts on my rhythm guitar when we laid down the line, uh, and then put bass on, and then had you know Igor Lynn copy all my guitar parts so that it did sound like you know a Zeppelin thing, um, uh, following the guitar lines and that mid eastern vibe. And then it goes into that rock section in the middle. So there's a bit of Zepp and Hendrix and Miles kind of stuck together. Maybe a little wow. Mahavishnu. Uh, oh yeah, there's definitely Mahavishnu like on Awakening. That one is definitely coming. That could have been a Mahavishnu song.
1: One of the songs on the record Lady M, I can't help but think it's a dedication to Mikhail. Tell us about it.
0: Lady M um, well, oh, you know Lady M is a um, was a song, um, Igor Lynn brought in the chord changes, um, and I thought they were beautiful chord changes, and then, you know, it had somewhat of a little melody, but then I said, let me take the melody and let me do what I wanna do with it. And so I, you know, I just freelanced on it and I listened to it, and after I listened to it, um, all the names of the songs actually came last to me on this record. It like takes a long time before you um, come up with titles for me on an instrumental record, But after I listened to it, I felt like it was like a lot of what we went through to be together, you know? There was this long time period where I've known Mikhail for like 25 years, and we were like best friends. probably always wanted to be together, but she never told me until like way later. And so you go through all these trial and tribulations in your life and try all these other things out and they don't end up working out. And then you end up where you're supposed to we're always meant to be that's kind of what the song sounded like to me when I was done with it you know you got this um, bluesy crying out guitar but it's a very beautiful melody too and the same you know with triumph of love except you know John and I wrote that for our wedding Um, and so that one was completely planned out that that was going to be about us and for our wedding the fall quarterly
1: print edition of Jazz's Magazine includes a piece on you and of course a track from Vortex. We chose White Light, because it showed a different side
0: of your music. You know what, it was crazy, like you just said a, a second ago, that you felt like it could be two records. When I initially heard everything that I had recorded, I hadn't recorded any acoustical pieces yet that were added to the record in the 11th hour. And I kind of felt like you did, because it was so intense, going from song to song without any ear breaks. Um, I started to feel like maybe this is uh, a single record and I shouldn't push for two double records because it sounded too heavy. And then the more I I started, you know, listening to it all put together because it was really the first time I had listened to everything put together. Really, you know, it's like I worked on one song and I'd leave it alone and move on to the next one. And until I listened to everything together, then I decided that you know I needed some ear breaks in between. It would be nice to have um, a couple acoustical songs, and then also like a beautiful piano interlude. Um, and so it started out with with Igor, Len, and um, you know I had a, a piano song that I wrote that I have sitting in my head forever, and I showed it to him. And then I, he just didn't quite get it, and so I said, "Well, forget about it." I said, "Just try to play." something like that freelance piano yourself and and that he did and it came out beautiful it was like one take and I went that's perfect and so we just kind of like put it on the shelf put it in the background and then we moved on to more heavier tracks and the finishing overdubs and orchestration with those Um, and then as I listened more and more I went I need more ear breaks here and so uh, I came up with um, one night I was downstairs in a house and Mikael walked in the room, and I was playing acoustic guitar, and she goes, "Oh, that's beautiful." And um, you know, I was just playing the song, I ended up calling mom, and um, you know, just a few, a couple beautiful chords with um, a pretty melody played over the top. Uh, and um, when I listened to it, I said, "It sounds like mom. It sounds like, you know, moms. I mean, any mom." Yeah. And when I listened to it. I go, "It sounds like, uh, and an, you know, an older mother." like looking at some old fo- photos and remembering her good memories you know and so from there then i felt as i listened and i started finishing more and more of the record white light it was the last song that i did and i had all these beautiful guitars downstairs um you know i like to have all my axes in this room and they're all kind of different types of in- instruments so i can basically get any kind of sound that comes in my head And I had all these beautiful guitars that I had not played yet, acoustic instruments. And one was like a beautiful Paul Reed acoustic that he gave me when he first started making acoustical instruments. Um, It's really warm and beautiful sounding that I played on White Light as a lead guitar. And um, then I took some of the tailors that I had that were amazing instruments and so, like, intonated as a 12-string, you know, and then, you know, acoustic six, and I just kind of layered them like I did on the Infinity record when I worked with Roy Thomas Baker. Like on Patiently, he had me lay like three acoustic guitars instead of one that I was initially going to do to make one giant acoustic guitar out of it. And um, yeah, that kind of came out of nowhere. I had that kind of rolling rhythm in my head that I was finger-picking for years and just never did anything with it kind of like Irish Irish cream too I, I had written that on a mandolin like back in the 80s and never did anything with it and um, so you know some of, some of this stuff was made up right on the spot and never played before and some of it was just in the back of you know the brain sitting there on the shelf waiting to be used well let me just say for vortex
1: your new nickname and your new album there's a lot of music to enjoy your fans are gonna love it. And I'd like to now talk about this birthday party that I've heard all kinds of rumors about. And there was a famous race car driver that did something very special. I won't let the cat out of the bag. Let me let you talk about it.
0: Uh, Yeah, you know, um, maybe you want to tell him. You want to tell him? Yeah, Mikael. She's sitting here listening.
2: Hi, nice to meet you.
0: You too. Yeah, nice to meet you
2: really good to hear your voice. We um, Neil's birthday, I was like, wow, what do you get Neil Sean, right? So I was having quite a time, and originally um, I called a friend, and Neil loves cars, he has Lamborghinis, he loves speed, he has motorcycles. So I was like, and I know those are the things, and he has everything, right? So you're thinking, ah, oh, what do I get him? So I called a friend who has the NASCAR experience. His name's Bob Lust. And I asked Bob, I said, Bob, I need a really great uh, race car driver to go and take me out for an experience for a day, you know? And he said, uh, okay, let me think. He said, well, I've got somebody in mind. And I said, he said his name, Mario Andretti. Well, I wasn't familiar with the race car world, <laughs> so, <laughs> right? And then I didn't know, so I said to him, Bob, this is... My husband's a rock legend. I said, I have to think big. The gift has to be big. (laughs) And Bob and I know each other like 10 years. So he, him and his wife, they're lovely. So I said, Bob, he goes, Mikel, trust me. You have to trust me. This is big. I said, I can't send my husband out there. You know, he has a lot of lives that are relying on him. He creates beautiful music. I want to protect my husband. I said, is the guy really experienced? He goes, "Mikael, <laughs> just trust me. So I hung up the phone. It was like 3 in the morning. We were falling asleep, and it was still in my head. He was like, I'm setting it up. So I thought, gosh, I better Google this man. So I Google him, and then I, I literally wrote him right then. I said, dear Bob, I'm an idiot. I, I'm really sorry. I'm so grateful. <laughs> I'm such a ding- dingy girl. I said, thank you. Please set that up. So we contacted Mario because they're friends who, uh, Mario does both NASCAR and Indy, right? So Bob said, "Um, I prefer you to wait. I said, no, it's Neil's birthday. I can't. So we ended up doing it for Indy, and Neil loved his gift because Neil's Italian, you know? Yeah, I've been
0: watching Mario already. uh, (laughs) When I used to, you know, when we first moved out from New Jersey, like I said, I I lived down in Hollister, California, while my folks. We're trying to get situated in San Francisco and we ended up in San Mateo on the peninsula. But I used to sit around with my mother's side of the family and they're all you know, the Italian side. All my uncles when I was a little kid, I must have been, you know, six six years old, and we'd watch Mario Andretti, and and they were all freaking you
2: know, flipping out. They were freaking out. Yeah. They flipped out. They're like, He's going live. So we did it, we loved it, and he can tell you about that experience, the ride. But I was so grateful And Mario and his family greeted Neil, you know, and I when we arrived. They're just a very beautiful, uh, heartfelt, loving family, very warm, and they couldn't have been nicer, but he'll tell you about the speed.
1: What what a beautiful birthday present. uh,
0: really kind. It was insane, man, and I have to say, you know, um, I've never quite felt anything like that, and I've been very, very fast in my own cars, Uh, but, you know, Going like 215, 220 in a two seater Formula car. His race Formula car is a Honda. And, you know, I've never been in one before, obviously, but you're sitting on the ground and there's nothing around you, you know, it's just a little tiny body, but you feel like you're in a, a, a bigger size go kart, you know, with a bigger motor and bigger wheels. And then you got Andretti driving, who is like, you know, he drives like, you know, it's like a Sunday drive for him just to go pedal to the metal, and 220, <laughs> like, without, you know, letting off at all, and so honest to God, we were going around the Indy Track, and he was really, you know, effing around, man. He was like, we'd go down into the pit area, and he didn't let up, and he'd go across the lawn, and then back up to the turn, and hit the turn high, or low, and you're really feeling like, uh, I've only felt zero G force before, and in a glider that I went up with a friend once in, and we we like harassed the guy so badly to just drop the plane. We wanted to go straight down at the ground. They wanted to feel zero G-force. And it's the only thing that I ever felt like that in a car. And it's it was wild, wild exhilarating experience. And he was like such a cool guy. And um, you know, I had brought one of my new um, PRS uh, NS-14s for him and signed it wrote a big note to him on it and he was like you know the happiest little kid when I gave him that present and uh, he said you know he everybody that was around him people closest to him said nobody's ever done anything that nice for him and then he gave me one of his racing winning suits
1: you know? okay I think you just gave away your secret to your youthful look if you play guitar at the speed of sound and you drive a car at the speed of light it probably slows down the aging process
0: <laughs> maybe so like <laughs> it's wild you know like when you, when you uh, get out of the car the ground you know doesn't quite feel like it's standing still you know still movement yeah
1: well i like so many others hope you never stand still wish you the best of luck on the new record look forward to talking to you soon thank you to mikhail for joining us today on jazz is not what you think